So I have a problem today, and that is that I have too many notes. So I am going to be on the struggle bus trying to make sure that we finish on time. And we will finish on time. When you look at what the world has to say about love, you see a lot of misleading and erroneous statements that emphasize the emotions and glorify selfishness. And yet, some of the greatest masterpieces of literature ever written are on the topic of love. One of my favorite sonnets by Shakespeare is Sonnet 116, which is on the topic of love. I'm going to read it to you and try not to do it in a British accent. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh, no. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Now, I love that sonnet because of the way it uses the English language like a symphony of words, but also because it borrows truth from God's word found in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. Moreover, like this chapter of 1 Corinthians, at least in my interpretation of this sonnet, this sonnet is not about romantic love, even if there are aspects of love generally that are applicable to romantic love specifically. Paul introduces this discourse on the importance of love here at the end of chapter 12. He says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. That was how he ended the last section. And I show you a still more excellent way. And Paul speaks here of a more excellent way. And when he says more excellent, he uses a phrase in Greek that says that something is the greatest possible action, thing, or quality within a particular category. This is something above and beyond. And it's better, I think, to take it as most excellent. This is the most excellent way or the greatest way. And way, of course, throughout Scripture is a a metaphor for a pattern of life. You see this in Psalm 1 or in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verses 1 to 3 says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. And then verses 9 and 10, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And so this imagery of, of walking in a path is a way that life is depicted in Scripture. And that's what Paul means here. It's, it's a pattern of life. Love is not just one superior way of, of, among others. Paul describes it as the most superior, the most excellent, the greatest of the greatest ways. Love is the greatest possible aspiration for your life as a Christian. As great as some of the spiritual gifts are, and Paul does depict some sort of hierarchy among these gifts, Love is preeminently above and beyond the greatest of the gifts. He said in 12 verse 7 that the gifts of the Spirit are for the common good. So Paul is talking about the role of love 
in your relationships with other members of the church as you exercise your spiritual giftedness. But of course, there are applications for other areas of life as well. Now, our theme, or really Paul's theme, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is this. A life characterized by love is more excellent than the greatest spiritual gifts alone. And Paul, throughout this chapter, gives three reasons for this. The first reason is that love makes spiritual gifts valuable in verses 1 to 3. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now we can observe in these verses that love is absolutely necessary to the proper exercise of spiritual gifts and Christian self-sacrifice. Paul essentially says, without love, nothing I do is worth anything to anybody. Paul develops this idea using exaggeration, forcing his hearers to imagine scenarios that were beyond reach. And in each case, he gets more and more intense. First, he says in verse 1 that supernatural speech without love is worthless. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And when he says tongues, you know, sometimes we can get tripped up over that. In Greek, the word refers to either the organ of speech that we have in our mouths or languages. And this is, this is a common feature of languages to often have an interchange between these ideas. Uh, if you're familiar with Spanish at all, the word lengua can be either a tongue or a language. If you've ever had lengua tacos, you're not having language tacos. You're, having, you're eating tongue, so, which are actually pretty good, by the way, if you've never tried them. That's my personal opinion. I got an amen. All right. Now, Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, Paul portrays this unsurpassing fluency in various languages to the extent that even angelic languages are imagined to be a form of communication for this speaker. Now, we have to say this, even though we really shouldn't have to, but this has nothing to do with the idea of an angelic prayer language. There's actually no such thing as an angelic prayer language. Um, this is basically an idea made up by charismatics to justify non-language babble that they call speaking in tongues. And as an ex-charismatic, I can say that. <laughs> I, have, I earned that right. <laughs> Paul compares angelic language to human language. And so we can only infer that if angelic language is even possible to speak with our speech organs and not merely imaginative hyperbolic expression on Paul's part, that this is a real language. Modern speaking in tongues is not actually speaking in other languages as numerous records have shown. Now, Paul compares this um, f this eloquence of speech, this supernatural speaking, without love to a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the word that he uses for gong, this is, this is an interpretive choice that the translators have made. The word actually refers to just bronze or brass material, not specifically an instrument. Uh, but noisy 
suggests the idea that it's being hit with something to cause this ringing or, or banging sound. And so this is likely brass instead of bronze because bronze is more brittle. And when he says clanging cymbal, this is not what you think of, you know, whenever you see Looney Tunes and they bang the huge cymbal together, right? This is something that's about that big, about the size of a CD, if you know what a CD is. They're disappearing. So, but it's about that size, and he's talking about it making this unpleasant wailing noise. Uh, it's, it's like an out-of-tune instrument. And so he's depicting this scenario. It's, it's like the noise that you would hear if you were between somebody who was banging a piece of brass on an anvil and somebody who's trying to play this out-of-tune brass instrument on the other side of you. And the noise that you would hear when you're, in, when you're trapped in between the two. That's what Paul has in mind. It's this cacophony. Supernatural speech without love is like that. It's just noise. Disruptive, unprofitable noise. Secondly, Paul says, supernatural insight without love is worthless. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Paul intensifies his characterization of supernatural insight with each step in this verse, moving from prophecy to knowing all mysteries and all knowledge to faith that can remove mountains. And moreover, this is an escalation beyond just the gift of languages in verse 1. You know, if I was living in the early church and there was somebody in my circle who had the gift of prophecy, I would think, man, that guy is really cool. I want to be like that guy. Well, you know, that was, this was one of the greater gifts that Paul had told them to desire eagerly. Um, this, is, this is something that they were seeking after, that they were desirous of. Now, then he moves from prophecy to this idea of knowledge, knowing all mysteries and all knowledge. Have you ever known somebody that just seemed to know something about everything? They could just carry a conversation about, on any topic. My grandpa was kind of that way. He had his own particular set of topics that he liked to talk about. But, you know, there are some people that just seem to know about everything, and you're like, man, you need to go on Jeopardy and win a ton of money and then share it. <laughs> but we're impressed when we meet people like that, right? When they just have this vast amount of knowledge. But imagine somebody not just knowing about earthly things, right, but knowing all the mysteries and knowing all the knowledge. I mean, I can barely wrap my head around that, right? But then Paul goes even further. He escalates it. Imagine someone with so much faith that they can remove mountains. Now, this was a proverbial figure of speech for accomplishing something impossible in a miraculous way. He goes from something that we can barely imagine because it seems so impossible to something that is literally impossible apart from miraculous intervention. Without love, even if you accomplished any of these things, it would be worthless. Without love, none of these are worth anything. Paul says, if I do not have love, I am nothing. No matter how cool people think, might think you are because you can do these things, you are nothing. The greatest gifts of supernatural insight without love offer nothing to the church. But he goes even further. He says, thirdly, that supernatural self-sacrifice without love is worthless. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
It's one thing to have the gift of tongues. It's another to have these other uh, gifts of supernatural insight or of faith. But it's a different thing to be devoted to self-sacrifice, to give up oneself. Now, in context, we can only assume that Paul is speaking of this self-sacrifice as something that's supernaturally motivated, since the previous two verses are dealing with supernatural gifts. He begins with the idea of giving away everything that one has for the purpose of feeding others. Paul imagines someone taking the mandate to the rich young ruler just grossly, literally, and out of context. He goes further by talking about surrendering oneself. Now, our text says, if I surrender my body to be burned, there are actually two options. And if you have the NASB, uh, there's actually a footnote. Uh, you may, it says, early manuscripts read that I may boast. So it's either if I surrender my body to be burned or if I surrender my body in order that I may boast or exult is another way to translate that. So this is actually a major textual variant. And I spent a lot of time trying to sort through which of these is the best reading. And honestly, the important thing to remember is that regardless of which one of these readings is the most original, the general intention of the text does not change. Paul is still talking about self-sacrifice, whether he says, if I surrender my body to be burned, or if I surrender my body in order that I may exult. Burn has later manuscript evidence. Uh, there aren't any manuscripts that I could identify that appear before the ninth century. And grammatically, it, the, the way that it's set up in Greek, it doesn't really fit for that time period. And so Boast has better manuscript evidence. The, the earliest manuscript that we have dates to about 200 AD. Um, and it's also the more difficult reading if we think that Paul is describing something commendable. It's harder to sort out, okay, how does he mean boast? And we can see how a scribe might come across that and think, oh, somebody made a mistake. I better fix this to something that makes a little more sense. We can, Im we can imagine that scenario more easily than we can imagine somebody changing it to boast. And so I think, and this is just you know, my, my opinion as I've you know, sorted through the evidence, I think boasting or exulting uh, is, is the right reading here uh, because boasting is not always something negative. I mean, Paul speaks about it in a very positive way in Romans, talking about exulting in God or exulting in Christ. And so if he's meaning ex uh, boasting here or exulting here, that's the sort of sense that he means it in. But he's describing Regardless, the loftiest self-sacrifice imaginable. And that's the idea we ought to have in mind when we read this. Now, when Paul was with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he reminded them that Christ said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But he tells the Corinthians that the greatest supernatural self-sacrifice without love has no spiritual benefit for the believer. He says, it profits me nothing. It doesn't do any good without love. If we would have spiritual gifts of any value whatsoever or do any works that are pleasing to God, love is absolutely necessary. Now, Paul has shown us why we need love, but now he begins to show us the second reason why love is greater to the highest extent than all other spiritual gifts. He does so by showing us the relationship of love to Christian conduct. Love is greater because it gives value to all other spiritual gifts in the first place, but in the second place, love is greater than the greatest spiritual gifts because love is for the sake of others, in verses four to seven. Now, these are qualities of love that Paul begins to list out. 
He says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And one of the fascinating things about this section is that some of these descriptions of love seem like predicates, such as love is patience or, or patient or love is not arrogant. But there are no adjectives here. In the Greek text, every single description of love in this paragraph uses verbs to show what love does or does not do. Love is action. These verbs are also highly personal. These descriptions of love are framed in such a way that makes it clear that love is fundamentally about relationships. There is no love without someone else, without another. And Paul has no vision of a love for humanity in the abstract. There's no abstraction here. Love is about real individuals, real people. And Paul describes love in 14 actions. The first of these is love angers slowly. When Paul says love is patient, he uses a verb that translates more literally to anger slowly. It's the verb form of the word that Paul uses in Galatians 5.22 when, he when he's listing patience among the fruits of the Spirit. Love imitates God's own character by being slow to anger. In Exodus 34.6, it says, the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God characterizes himself as slow to anger. When we are slow to anger, when we anger slowly, we're imitating God. We're patterning our own selves after him. Now ask yourself honestly, how quickly do I get angry with people? Are you slow to anger or are you quick to anger? And let me just put you to the test here because how do you answer that question when you're driving? Just throwing that out there. I know I don't, I don't pass very well at answering that question. When I, if I think about how I drive and the way I respond to other drivers when they do things that I think are a little uncomfortable. Secondly, love demonstrates kindness. When Paul says love is kind, the verb refers to demonstrating kindness or doing acts of kindness. And like patience, kindness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. In salvation, believers have tasted the kindness of the Lord, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 3. There is no godliness without kindness. How many people would say that you are kind? Does kindness characterize your life? Love does not envy. Paul says, is not jealous. But let's turn it into an action word. Love does not envy. Paul uses the same word, for eagerly desiring that he used in verse 31 of chapter 12. But the idea here has to do with envy or jealousy because the immediate context is completely different. Envy leads to hostility. Envy leads to quarrels. James 4.2 says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious, that's our word, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
Are you envious of others? Are you jealous of things that others have that you don't? Your envy is not produced by love. Love does not brag. And this word is actually really rare. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. But this is the idea of speaking boastfully or braggadociously, vaingloriously. And it's from a noun equivalent. So this is like if you took the word windbag and made it into a verb. Love does not windbag, if you can imagine that. Do you ever brag to others about your own skills or achievements? Do you ever brag and flatter yourself? That's not love. Love does not become conceited. Our text says love is not arrogant, but it's the image of bellows. You know what bellows are? Okay, so it's like if in a fireplace, the thing that you pull, pull apart so it fills with air and then you squeeze it and it blows air out. But when it's filled with air, it looks a lot bigger than it really is. But it's empty as we would understand it. That's conceit. It looks large, but it's really empty. It's just full of air. The idea is thinking better of oneself for reasons that ultimately prove to be completely bogus. This is padding your resume, as it were. In the context of relationships, it involves starting to think better of yourself than someone else. Do you think of yourself as superior to others? Do you ever find yourself looking down on others? Do you find other people in your life to be inferior in some way? Love doesn't think that way. It doesn't do it. It doesn't do that. But also, love does not act shamefully or unbecomingly, as our text says. When you love someone, you aren't rude to them. That's the idea here. You don't cause embarrassment to someone you love. I mean, kids do that unintentionally, right? But they don't do it because they don't love us. The word here, again, is relatively rare, but it has the idea of failing to behave with decorum or acting with impropriety. Love doesn't do that. Love tries to honor the other person. Are you courteous and polite to others? Is your speech and behavior marked by propriety? And I'm not talking about just at church, but like in the everyday when you're out living your life. Are you rude to anybody? Or do you show them courtesy and politeness? Or do you delight in making other people uncomfortable or embarrassed? There's some people that take weird delight in things like that. But love doesn't do that. Love does not seek its own interests. Are you more interested in what you get out of a relationship than what you bring to it? Do you care more about being served than serving others? That's not the mind of Christ. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Is that your mindset? Love does not get provoked. Now, this is what the idols in Athens did to Paul when he looked around and saw all these Greeks worshiping false gods. Acts 17, 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, Paul here was getting provoked about something that was worth getting provoked about, right? But in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, he's talking about love getting irritated. 
Love does not get irritated. It does not get provoked to anger. Love is not moved to wrath by the actions of others. Note that this assumes people are doing things that might be provoking or irritating. Love does not bend with the remover to remove. Your reaction does not change when people do things that are provoking or irritating. Love does not bow down to the altar of self. Love never says, I have a right to get angry. Basically, love has no rights, which agrees with what Paul says next. Love does not keep an account of wrongs. Have you ever known anyone who would hold grudges for years and years? I mean, I, I grew up with somebody like that. And sadly, this is something you often see in families. But how much more grievous is it when we see something like this in the church? Paul gives us the image of someone with a, a little ledger and an abacus, keeping records of all the wrongs that others are doing to him. Paul makes no direct comment on the legitimacy of these wrongs. But his language seems to assume that these could be legitimate wrongs. In other words, love does not keep a record of the failures of others to love. Love does not alter when it alteration finds. And where does that lead? What good does that accomplish? If it, I mean, if it isn't serious enough to merit a church discipline confrontation, let love cover a multitude of sins. As 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Let that be your attitude. Moreover, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love shares God's hatred of sin. We often hear the expression, love the sinner, hate the sin. And we're often reminded that you can love somebody without affirming them in their sin. But seldom do we hear or, or see any scripture to support that. Well, this is that text. Love is no less love for refusing to rejoice in someone's unrighteousness. But this also extends to the area of gossip, right? I mean, some news amounts to little more than gossip. Sometimes we have this weird delight in hearing about the wrongdoing that someone else has done or in telling about that to others. But that's not love. And Paul contrasts this not rejoicing in unrighteousness with rejoicing with the truth. And we really have to take these two ideas together because Paul groups them together. Not only do we not rejoice when people act unrighteously, but we rejoice when we see the work of God's word in someone's life. When we see the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart, we rejoice with that. Not only do we, um, yeah, we, and we're grieved over sin. When we see someone sin, we're grieved over that. But then we rejoice over sanctification or even salvation in some cases. Well, in every case, we're happy about someone getting saved, right? But do you rejoice with the truth? Do you rejoice when you see the work of salvation or sanctification in the lives of others? That's something to be happy about. Love, love bears all things. The word Paul uses here has to do with restraining a liquid of some kind. Interestingly enough, this word is only, only appears twice in the New Testament, and Paul uses it both times 
And I taught on the other text in Sojourners a couple years ago in 1 Corinthians, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. But the idea has to do with restraining a liquid of some kind. It's a, it's a metaphor. Love is a wineskin that will not burst. Love is a levee that never breaks. Love is a jar that does not crack or a pipe that never bursts. Love is unbreakable. Love doesn't buckle under stress or pressure. Is that what others say about your love? Is your love dependable when things get hard? It's easiest for me, I know, in my own life to make excuses for my own failures to love when I'm under stress. But love doesn't do that. It doesn't. And love believes all things. Paul is not saying that love is gullible. Love is not suspicious or cynical. Love is not on the lookout for contradictions. Love sets no traps. As one commentator said, love never loses faith. Love will count someone innocent until proven guilty. Love prefers to believe the individual rather than his accusers until real evidence is given against him. Love doesn't jump to conclusions. Love recognizes that an accusation is not equivalent to guilt. And love hopes all things. This goes right along with believing all things. Love never exhausts hope. Love looks for the best. Love expects good things. Faith and love go together. Even when belief in someone fails because some accusation or, or whatever turns out to actually be true, love hopes for a good outcome. And when a notorious sinner makes a profession of faith, love doesn't treat it with suspicion or doubt. Love has an expectation that progress and sanctification will follow. And love endures all things. Paul uses the word for perseverance, that, that quality that is built up through tribulations. Romans 5.3 says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. By the way, that's our word exult from earlier. Tribulations are something to boast in, to exult in, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance or endurance. Love perseveres through everything. Love withstands all trials. Love is dependable. And the endurance of love is the natural mate to the unbreakableness of love. Even when the stress is high and the trials are on, love remains patient. Love remains kind. It remains unjealous. It remains unbragging. It remains unboastful. It remains without rudeness. It remains without selfish motives. It remains unprovoked. It continues not keeping a record of wrongs suffered. It continues not rejoicing with unrighteousness, but continues rejoicing with the truth. Love remains faithful. Love remains hopeful. Love bears it out, even to the edge of doom. Now, love is challenging. I suspect that I'm not the only one who has experienced conviction through reading these qualities of love. Continue to make progress in love. Love is one of those marks by which the world will recognize true disciples of Christ. The Lord said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
But Paul has a third reason why love is most excellent. So he's already told us that love is greater to the highest extent than the greatest spiritual gifts because love gives value to other spiritual gifts and because love is for the sake of others. But thirdly, love is greater because love endures when all other gifts cease. Paul says, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will, be, I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, full disclosure, this paragraph has some really interesting details that can grab our attention and also distract us. But we must not lose sight of the point that Paul is making. And he says it right at the very beginning. Love never fails. Everything that appears afterward in this paragraph is intended to support that main proposition that love never fails. Now, there are some who use this text as a defense for cessationism, which is the correct belief that the temporary sign gifts came to an end around the time that the apostles died and went to be with the Lord. I think one reason some use this text is because it's one of the uh, few places, or maybe the only place, that talks about any gifts ceasing using the word cease. And so it's tempting to try and use it. But this text is not directly a sound argument for cessationism. So if you're ever having a conversation with some guy who's a continuationist, don't go to this text. It's not the best one. There are better ways to argue that case. And we can talk about that later if you really need to. Or you can just pick up Pastor Tom's book. But the re- it's, this is not a good text for arguing for cessationism, which is why in Pastor Tom's book, he doesn't use this text. And he actually says, it's a bad idea to use this text. Um, he doesn't recommend using it. Instead, what we should do with this text is follow the flow of Paul's argument. Paul is not giving a discourse on the cessation of any gifts. He is using details about the cessation of gifts to make his point that love is better because it endures when other gifts cease. And Paul makes three points to support this. First is that the sign gifts are temporary. He says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So when he says love never fails, literally this is love never falls. You know, we can talk about somebody having a lapse of knowledge or a lapse of judgment. Love never lapses. There is never a time that love stops being love. That is Paul's main point. Everything else here supports that main point. It's, it's like one of the skeletons from the valley of dry bones. And everything else here is the flesh and blood that goes onto that skeleton, making up the body of the argument. But notice that Paul uses this little word here, but. He says, love never fails, but. He sets up a contrast. If the Corinthians still had any doubts about whether the gifts were more important than love, Paul is about to abolish that notion. He says, if there are gifts of prophecy. Now, you'll notice that the word gifts is in italics. That's because our translators of the NASB 
Uh, well, I'm assuming you're using the NASB. That's what I'm using. I don't know what version you're using, but I'm using the NASB. They're in italics because it's an interpretive decision, but I think it's the right one. And we should likewise see these as gifts of tongues and gifts of knowledge, the same gifts that are mentioned in chapter 12. Uh, these are best seen as gifts because prophecies will still be in Scripture. Languages will still be spoken. Knowledge in general will not cease to exist. And so Paul has something specific in mind. I think it's the gifts. But he says that they will be done away. They will be abolished, put away, brought to an end. Love never fails because love will never be done away with. It will never cease. The sign gifts endure for a fixed period of time, but love has no term limit. Paul elaborates, however, on the nature of sign gifts to further strengthen his point that love always endures. He argues, in the second place, that the sign gifts have a temporary purpose. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The first way that we see that the sign gifts have a purpose that is temporary is that they are incomplete. Paul's language here can be a bit tricky to try and bring smoothly into English, but the idea is actually pretty simple. Our knowledge is incomplete, and our prophecies are incomplete. We don't have complete knowledge, and prophecies don't give a complete picture. Now, this was true of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ, as Peter makes clear in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 to 11, uh, which for time I'll just skip reading that, but you can look it up later. Uh, but the Old Testament prophet, prophets did not always have a clear understanding of how these things would be fulfilled. Even the apostles did not understand initially that Gentiles would be saved. It was only after God started saving Gentiles that they realized, oh, well, there's actually prophecies that pointed to this all along, and Paul details some of those in Romans. Uh, Paul's point here is that the knowledge and the prophecies given through spiritual gifts were sufficient but incomplete compared to the realities to come that they pointed to. And prophecy and knowledge are not two parts that make up a whole because in verse 10, both are considered what is in part. Uh, the perfect refers to the coming realities that the gifts of prophecy and knowledge point to. And so Paul points again uh, in verse 11 to the temporary purpose of the sign gifts by comparing them to the difference between immaturity and maturity. He says that the sign gifts are like immaturity. And he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Paul uses a very clear and simple analogy here. Anytime we see a grown man acting childish, it makes us uncomfortable because we know, dude, you're not supposed to be behaving like that. You need to grow up, you know? We know that these childish behaviors are not appropriate for his age. Maturity replaces immaturity. Immaturity is necessary for a time, but it's designed to disappear. Now, in English, we don't see the connection very clearly between maturity and the perfect. But in Greek, the word perfect is actually the same word that Greek would use to say mature. And so Paul is using that word like a hinge to go from one idea to a different but similar idea. But Paul picks back up the idea that prophecy and knowledge are incomplete and tells the Corinthians in verse 12 that the sign gifts are not the realities they point to. This is another reason why the sign gifts have a temporary purpose. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then 
I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So the first thing that we see here is his expression, now we see in a mirror dimly. And I've heard weird ideas about what that means, but I'm just going to tell you what it really means. The word dimly uh, is from a Greek expression that would translate very woodenly to in enigma. So in enigma. In Greek, an enigma is a riddle. And so if you try and take that very literally, you end up not really understanding what's going on. But when you look at that phraseology in its larger context of the Greek language, you see that this is actually a figure of speech, meaning that there is something incomplete or imperfect about what is seen. And when he says we see in a mirror or through a mirror dimly or in enigma, you have to think about how ancient mirrors actually were. So a lot of times, you know, we'll go to the bathroom, we'll see ourselves in the mirror, you know, fix our hair, whatever, and we can see very clearly what we look like. But in the ancient world, mirrors were not so good. They were just made of polished metal, and no matter really how much you polished that metal, there were still going to be imperfections and some blurriness involved in the image that you were able to see. And so, and often, the, the mirrors were, because it was so hard to achieve this perfectly glassy, smooth finish, a lot of times they would intentionally distort the image so that whenever you looked in a mirror, you might see something that didn't look quite exactly like it should have, and it was partly on purpose because they couldn't, they couldn't achieve perfection anyway, and so they were like, well, we, since we can't achieve perfection, we might as well make the imperfection a little more intentional. Uh, there were also, in Corinth, for example, uh, some a temple where um, some of the, there were mirrors that were set up as part of the decoration that were intentionally designed to distort the images that people would see. So if, if you've ever been to a, a carnival or a fair or something and you saw all these fun mirrors that aren't, aren't exactly very fun, um, you know, they distort the image that you see. You know, you can either look really skinny and have this really fat head or, you know, whatever, I don't know. Um, but that's, a lot of what a lot of mirrors were like. And so that's what a lot of people would have associated with the word mirror. Like, that's what would have come to their mind. And so when Paul says, we see through a mirror something that's incomplete, it's a figure of speech that says that the thing that is seen is just a vague representation of something else that it represents. But he contrasts this with seeing face to face. Now, this is another idiom. But it refers to just direct sight or firsthand experience. And so with the idea of seeing through a mirror dimly, we can understand that Paul is saying that the sign gifts point beyond themselves. Like the sign gifts aren't the end-all be-all, but they point to future realities that we only experience imperfectly through the sign gifts themselves. But we will one day experience those realities directly. I mean, take the book of Revelation. I mean, there are prophecies that are made in that book that we will get to experience in the future. But if you'll pay attention, there are times when Pastor Tom has been going through Revelation and he's like, you know, we don't know exactly what this means, but it probably means this. And then we move forward because we don't have the exact information because it hasn't happened yet. That was how the Old Testament prophecies were until Christ came. It wasn't always clear how these things would be fulfilled. And Paul is making that point. The prophecies and the gifts of knowledge, they don't give the clarity of, of the direct, real experience that is to come. 
And he clarifies by going on and saying, now I know in part. He uses the gift of knowledge, for example. In the future state, his present knowledge, the knowledge that he has now, will be inferior to his future knowledge. His future knowledge will be similar to the knowledge that God has of him, especially compared to the knowledge he has now. The sign gifts are incomplete. They disappear like immaturity when maturity comes. And they are not the realities they point to. And all of this demonstrates that the sign gifts have a temporary purpose. But Paul has one final analysis. And we've seen in verses 9 to 12 that compared to the sign gifts, love never fails. It is never done away with, never ceases, never displaced by something greater. It doesn't just serve a temporary purpose. Paul makes a final analysis that faith, hope, and love are permanent. In verse 13, he says, But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now one reason why love is superior to the sign gifts is that love is permanent. Love remains, faith remains, hope remains, and love remains. They never disappear. They never go away. These will never be abolished. These will never cease. He speaks of them remaining using the present tense, but he does so implying that they remain now and into the future. There is no end to love. In case there were any doubts, Paul makes it abundantly clear that love endures alongside faith and hope. And then he essentially ends where he began. He says the greatest of these is love. At the beginning, he told the Corinthians that he would show them the most excellent way. And now he identifies the greatest way in the clearest terms. He's like, if you got all this, if you got all this way with me, if you tracked with me and you didn't understand that I, said, that I was saying that love is the greatest way, love is the greatest. The greatest of these is love. Love was displayed to the world when the eternal Son of God surrendered himself to death for the life of the world. The words of Christ are truly immortal and timeless. If he should delay his coming for another 10,000 years, Shakespeare may be forgotten. But his words, Christ's words, these words of Christ will always linger in the hearts of his sheep. John 15, verses 12 to 17, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you, that you love one another. Love is bound up with our election, our instruction, our prayers, the fruit we bear, and the atonement made by Christ for our sins. If you want, if you would be a friend of Christ and know his love, you must love one another. And when your life is not shaped by love and saturated with love, you are not living as a friend of Christ. Have you elevated your own sense of spirituality above love? Repent. Humble yourself and love one another. Does your love of knowledge outweigh your love for others? Repent. 
Humble yourself and love one another. Do you find your love imperfect? I think we could all probably say yes. Put off the old man and put on the new man. Take action. Be zealous for good works. Be zealous for love. Are you without love for others? Or have you substituted Christian love with worldly sentimentality? Consider whether you have truly known the love of Christ. Consider whether there has truly been a work of grace in your life, whether you have truly believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and put your confidence and hope in that. Trust in the love shown by God for his enemies. Let's pray. Father, what can I say? What can I say about your love and the love that you have shown us in Christ? God, my words are just nothing compared to your word. But Lord, you have made known to us the gospel of your son. You have revealed your great love for us by sending him to die in our place, to bear your wrath so that those who put their faith and hope in him can have his righteousness instead of their filthy rags. Father, we thank you for that great exchange. And Lord, I pray that we would love one another as we have been loved, that we would exercise our gifts with love, that we would live out love for one another and thereby show the world that we are Christ's disciples. God, may we not fail in love and prove to the world that Christ is followed by a bunch of hypocrites. I pray that there would be no hypocrisy in us. Father, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.